0: This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief.
1: Hello and welcome to Humans of Gaming. I'm your host, Drew Dixon. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Chris Gwaltney. Hey, Chris, what hey. you been doing?
0: I have been... I don't know. That's such a broad question. I oh, wanted you to say. I've been you.
1: Yeah, I wanted you to say I've been recording podcasts. Yeah,
0: we're on a we we're been. on a tear, man. Yeah, we are. i not messing around. We got
1: a seriously strong backlog of podcasts. Yeah, and one of those is the one we're recording right now. hey Heyo, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shane yeah. Leesgang is on the show. That's oh, hey hi. Shane.
2: Hey, how's it going? Good, sure. how are
1: you? I didn't know how to say your last name, and then you said, you, you pronounced it just like I would have, exactly oh, how I would have. You were going to get it right name, on the first
2: try. That's impressive.
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah. That was it would have it been cool. But
2: uh, how do you say it in German? What's the German way? Do you... yeah, the The German pronunciation would be like Lisa Gong.
0: Lisa okay. Gong.
2: Three syllables and kind of a Z sound. You
0: have um, to say it angrier, though.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. It really got the authentic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, get some I, have some, uh,
0: stereotypes. I have some German friends, and I was in Cologne a couple of years ago with them. And they were trying to teach me how to pronounce the German, like the German name of the city is Kohn. Mm-hmm. And they kept trying to get me to pronounce it. And I would just say it like that, like Kohn, Kohn. And they're like, no, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Finally, I just got really frustrated. And I was just like, Kohn. And they're like, yeah, that's it. You did it. That's <laughs> spot on. I'm like, great. So I just have to be like mad. Every time I say a German word, and they're like, "Yeah, that's pretty much it." Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, Lisagang, go.
0: Lisagang, yeah, exactly. No, I, I don't know. That didn't
1: do it for me, but it sounded well. I'm not even going to go there. Uh, right. <laughs> so, Shane, tell me about yourself. We are having this. We so on this podcast, we typically have game designers more often than not. Um, sometimes we'll have other industry professionals on this show, but by and large game designers and you are sort of unique in that sense. Cause you're not a game designer anymore, but you were.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like it's one of those things where I'm, I'm still a game designer.
1: Maybe. Yeah.
2: Like I definitely still see the world that way, but,
1: uh, Oh, cool. Yeah. Not, I wouldn't hear about that. Yeah. So you are a Jesuit scholar. Is that scholastic?
0: Correct? Scholastic. Yes. What's the difference?
2: Uh, well, scholar—I I guess you could say I'm a scholar, but scholastic is my official title. Yeah. Um, it, uh, so, I—it means I am still in formation. I am not yet a priest, but uh, I have taken vows. Got it. Okay, so that makes me a scholastic.
1: Are you? Are you? Is, the, is there? A, are you planning to become a priest, or is that yeah. just?
2: Yeah. If okay. I was, if I was not on the track for priesthood, then I would be a brother.
1: Okay, gotcha. Cool well uh, yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you because you have a really interesting history of game design. We want to hear about that uh, but then also definitely want to hear your story of of making this decision to to become a Jesuit and study to become a priest. Um, so yeah, I guess give us like frame for us your past in game design so our listeners kind of have, have a have a uh, framework for what you've done.
2: Sure. Um, I mean growing up I was a, I was a theater kid. Did a lot of musical theater and stuff, Um, and uh, I was never, I was never very good. It actually took me a while to kind of uh, come to terms with that and say, like, oh man, (laughs) yeah, I'm just, I'm not going to be an actor. Um, Yeah. But once I did sort of come to own that, I realized actually, you know, writing and directing was a hell of a lot more fun. And um, Mm. so I really dove into that. And in college, I was, uh, I was doing writing and directing. Um, I was also doing psychology and computer science as my other major and, um, you know, uh, the market for being a professional theater person, um, very, very small and, uh, you know, not, Mm -hmm. not the most lucrative. Um, at the same time I was a good programmer, but not a superstar. And so it didn't look like I was going to get a stellar career there either, but, um, you know, video games are something where the fact that I could do both of these things made me useful. Um, the fact mm. that I had kind of this creative side and this technical side. Mm. Um, that I could code uh, and that I could write. Um, and that more importantly, I could help bridge those two worlds. Uh, so, yeah. so I started, um, so I went to um, out of college, I went to Carnegie Mellon's entertainment technology center and got a, got a degree there. And uh, that, I briefly went through like, maybe I'll be a, maybe I'll want to be an Imagineer at Disney and was looking at that, doing theme park stuff for a while. Um, but ultimately I uh, got this uh, really stupendous offer for someone right out of school to work on the, the, one of the Steven Spielberg games at electronic arts. Um, and it's uh, it's unfortunately it's L, it's LMNO, which is like this, now this kind of legendary thing in the industry, partly because it never had to ship uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, in when the economy tanked in 2008, uh, EA had to trim back a lot of things, and so that game got canceled. Um, oh man, what
1: ago. was it, it? What was it going to be again? A Steve, it was a Steven Spielberg
2: game? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's. <laughs> I think officially that's still under NDA, there, but there have there have been articles about it. Since okay. Then. <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, you know, like I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be the guy who finally confirms those things. Uh, right. What, nope. what, is it, what is out there? is is fairly is fairly accurate, um, but it was it was the big thing is it was going to be this emotionally based game, uh, building a relationship between you, and uh, and a secondary character that was with you the whole time, um, and this was something that, uh, it, like, that we were started working on it in like two thousand five two thousand six, uh, so it wasn't quite in the zeitgeist yet. But then
0: yeah.
2: after uh, after we the the project got shut down, and I I don't think it was necessarily because of us. I think the technology and the industry was kind of getting to a point where everybody was started to get interested in these more emotional systems. And so you started seeing stuff like last of us uh, yeah. uh, stuff. Oh God, what am I, I'm forgetting now. There were all these games that came out in the next few years that had, mm-hmm. uh, or like Alex and half-life um, that had these characters with you. And, uh, and so we, we wanted to, that, that was something we were looking at and saying, what we really want to do here is, is get you to build a relationship with that character and have that be the core of the game to have this great, fun action game on top of it, but really to, to have, to, to be learning how to relate to somebody else. You know, and that game had, yeah. You know, like as a, as a designer, fresh out of school, getting to work on that project, like, cause it was like an all-star cast of game developers. Hmm. Um, so I learned so, so much on that. And that was what, uh, the connections there and what I learned there. helped Cool. Me
1: so who who's like job. an all-star that you worked with in that phase that, stood out maybe uh,
2: those uh doug church and randy smith are kind of where i uh i guess learned game design oh wow And those yeah. are those are two guys from looking glass way back in the day um and both stupendously talented um and uh you know i, I owe a lot to them both just in terms of my the sort of the, the practical nature of my career. They yeah. were willing to take a chance on hiring me, but also mm. just what I learned about how to be a designer, how to work on a team. Right, um, yeah. Really and
1: just to frame it. for for our listeners, uh, Looking Glass, those guys worked with Looking Glass. So that's like uh, Thief and uh, System Shock. System Shock, yeah. And like, so these games that are, these, these guys were guys that worked on games that are sort of um, like super influential, I would say, in yeah. uh, modern game design.
2: Yeah, the very um, systems-driven, player-owned, mechanically-focused experiences. And that was... So that became sort of my own aesthetic as a designer the kind of things I wanted to build. But then at the same time, what we were trying to add here was this emotional thing that would have taken some of the same kind of design flavor uh, of being very systemic, of being very Mm -hmm. player-driven, but um, instead of exploring a physical space, to be exploring an emotional space. Yeah. Uh, And so that became almost my specialty, uh, like building characters like that. Um, and for the rest of my career, as such as it was, like I would always find ways to kind of be doing that wherever I was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so give us some examples of games that you worked on after that. What did that lead to? Uh,
2: so from there, um, my next job was at Bethesda, where uh, I, the obviously the big thing was, was Skyrim. Um, I Never was... Yeah, no, it's this little tiny game. <laughs> um, but uh, when I showed up, they were finishing the DLC for Fallout 3. And uh, I did like some playtesting of that for them and helped out a smidge with it. But for the most part, I was on Skyrim from day one, uh, when it was still a pretty tiny team, as, uh, as people were rolling on as they finished the Fallout DLC.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: and so there, you know, that was... Four-ish years of my life, uh, sure. um, and that was great. Yeah, uh, especially getting to getting to work on a project like that from beginning to end.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Um, was that like so? Was it mostly character design? Is that what you did? Or
2: so I was a quest designer on Quest that game.
1: designer. So okay.
2: uh, it's a so yeah, I would do a lot of character work, but also you know they would. it's interesting. So there's, you know, yeah, character design and quest
1: design in the Bethesda world of, of playing (laughs) sort of like, those are sort of synonyms, I I guess, probably.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's not, yeah, we don't, uh, unlike a lot of studios, we don't have a breakdown between writer and designer. Uh, So the people who build the quests are also the people who write the dialogue. Yeah. Write the Mm -hmm. books. Um, And so on that team, there's like, when I was there, there were about eight people on the quest design team. And so we, the world was kind of parceled up between us and we got to, you know, so they said, here's this corner of the world and here's the map for it. That was already done. But they said, you know, who are the people who live in these towns? And, you know, we, little Shane, who was, uh, used to a much more hierarchical, uh, production style was, I was, I was shocked. I was like, wait, you're saying I could just make stuff up and and go (laughs) in the game. And they said, yeah, um with you know the the, a lot of oversight and veto power yeah Yeah. if i got too far off the rails they would definitely correct me but you know for the most part it's like well i see this village here um it's on a lake maybe it's a fishing village sure it's a fishing village the people there fish and then i'm making these families of 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 fishermen (laughs) yeah uh, and so it was kind of fascinating to build the world that way that's and set up uh what we or what we were talking, we would call them story hooks. Um, So you would kind of set up these conflicts, but not necessarily a quest to resolve them. So you would set up like a love triangle or you would set up two characters who don't like each other or someone who needs something. And then later on, another designer might come through and pick up on that story hook for a story they were trying to tell. Mm. So, um, that's one of the things I, I love about that world is there's a lot of those story hooks that don't, don't get picked up. So they're just there. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I sort of like that aspect of you don't have agency over everything. As, as a player, you you step in and you can't control everything you find. Yeah. You can't solve every problem. It feels a
0: little more real, I think, that way. It feels like lived in, you
2: know? Yeah. And you know, I, uh, realism is not necessarily the hallmark of, of, of those games. But, sure. But, but but I like the, the sense that this world is bigger than you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't right. exist just for you to interact with. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, and I do like that about Skyrim. I, mean, I think that's one of the things I probably enjoy most about it is how walking into each village and things, each sort of populated area. You, it, it, it it obviously does exist for the player, but it doesn't right. feel I mean, that it, way.
2: Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's kind of a farce to say that because obviously you walk in and we're playing these triggers to make things happen. Sure. It is very much centered on you and a lot of things won't happen until you show up. But I think the, the fiction and the story exists at a level that precedes kind of the mechanical.
1: Mm -hmm. Can you think of something that really stands out in your mind that like a, like a quest line that you're proud of that you were involved in? I'm, I ask that because I know that we have a lot of listeners who will hear this. They're like (laughs) big Skyrim people. They'd be curious to hear Uh,
2: I always joke when I meet someone who I know is a fan of the game. I say, I, "Whatever you liked is something I did. <laughs> whatever you hated was some other designer." Yeah, um, because inevitably, you, you'll get the very honest person who's like, "Oh, I didn't like that quest." Oh, well, okay, um, <laughs> but that's okay too. I mean, I'll answer your question, but uh, but the uh, you know early on, one of my my lead designer. I remember when I pitched a quest idea to him, he kind of gave me this look and he said, "Well, so is that's not a quest I would want to do, but that's okay." Uh, you know, not every quest is for every player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was also very empowering. To that's cool. To yeah, be able to, yeah. Um, but he, but then he also gave me this admonition of, but remember, if you piss off five percent of our players, you just pissed off, you know, two million people, <laughs> or whatever number it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as long
0: as you're yeah. okay making two million enemies, go for it.
2: Right. <laughs> and so, that, uh, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm wary. But, um, but no, I, um, I would say most of my time on the Vanilla game, the initial release was spent mm-hmm. on the companions questline, um, which is like the the Fighters Guild of Skyrim. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. The guys who, uh, spoilers, uh, can become werewolves. Right. Uh, so, um, kind of built, and that's a quest that, you know, it evolved a lot as we were making the game. Uh, Gosh, as, this is as sort of I. Got my feet under me, and
1: yeah, know. this is interesting because it's reminding me just how massive that game is. Because oh my gosh, I didn't touch. <laughs> I played. I probably played like a hundred hours of Skyrim or something. I didn't touch any of what you're talking about. No, <laughs> yeah, that's fine.
0: Really, yeah. that's like one of the. I think kind of first. Big quest lines you're introduced to. I mean, yeah,
2: because it? it, it, it's in White Run, which is the first thing yeah. yeah. most people get to. But yeah, but if I you're just the didn't... player who, the moment you get out of character generation, just sort of goes off in your own mm-hmm. direction. You might never see it. Yeah, that's what I did. I did all the thieves guild stuff. Uh, yeah,
1: and
0: just... uh, you're scumbag. That's why.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know yeah. why, but at the time, the idea of like sneaking around and stealing stuff from everywhere was appealing to me. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, I was like,
2: it's fun. I mean, yeah. for the same reason the dark Brotherhood is fun.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: right. Expressions you know, is, is a fun thing to play with. Yeah. Uh,
0: crap. Uh, I'm going to be playing Skyrim <laughs> today. Stop talking about <laughs> it.
2: Oh my <laughs> gosh. Um, but then in the, uh, in the DLC, uh, the, the first big DLC we did, uh, was, oh God, which one was, it? uh, Guard, And, um, yeah. in that, uh, you, you, if you remember it, uh, you might remember there's the secondary character who's with you for most of the quest. Um, the, if, if that sounds familiar from previous, what's her
0: name? Serena, right? Serana. Serena. Serena. Yeah. That was close.
2: Yeah, that's good. Uh, but yeah, so she was kind of my baby for that. Um, wow. And I, I, I uh, you know, I was one of the folks helping with the the main storyline of that of it as well. But for the most part, I was working on her. Those are the two big ones, and there's a smattering of lots of other stuff I did across that game, but those are like the the big marquee ones. Yeah.
1: And then you also worked on another really small game called Fallout 4. Is that right?
2: Yes. uh, Just for about a year. Okay. Um, We shipped Skyrim in 2011, and I left Bethesda in 2013. So the first year was spent on DLC, and the second year I was working on Fallout. Okay. yeah, and the, and that was great. Um, but I I actually still haven't played Fallout Four um, because I, <laughs> uh, I I as a as a Jesuit novice I did not have any hardware that could play it. Um, right. I briefly played it at a friend's house just to make sure the robot pronounces my name correctly because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it has the entire dev staff uh, programmed in. Um, oh, really? It does say Lee's gang, uh, but nice. that's that's the only thing I checked. Uh, and you know, I haven't gotten a chance really. to play. It. Yeah. <laughs> So, but yeah, so I don't know. Um, I actually don't know the kind of the final fate of a lot of the stuff I was working on. Uh, cause <laughs> I know when I left, some of it got handed off. Some of it got dialed down. Uh, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know where it ended up. So one of these days right. I'll sit down with it and I'm excited to do it. But yeah, I, that's. That, that, that's a game I sort of sit in a strange relationship to <laughs> having seen it very early on, but not having seen the finished product. Yeah,
0: right.
1: So to frame for our, our listeners, because I think some of them won't know. Um, I know a little bit about what it means to be a Jesuit, but I, I probably don't know well, as you know, I, I'm, I probably even have some misinformation about that. What is, what is a Jesuit?
2: So a Jesuit is a member of the society of Jesus, which um it oh, uh, was founded in the 1500s in Spain. I uh, thought you were going to say in like 33 AD or... <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. That's the Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> gotcha. Uh, um, but no, we were uh, in the 1500s the Renaissance uh, in Spain by uh, this interesting character named Ignatius of Loyola uh, who was a soldier and a court- courtier and you know was very interested in adventuring and women and honor and then had this moment where he was uh he was injured in a battle and as he was recuperating in a nearby castle he um he wanted to be reading his adventure stories but all they had was a copy of the life of christ and the life of some saints and so that's what he had to read and uh it was this conversion experience of realizing um not not just being inspired by them but realizing uh when he thought about his previous life, he would feel fulfilled. But then when he stopped thinking about it, it went away. Whereas when he Mm. thought about the lives of the saints and of Christ, uh, he would feel fulfilled. But when he stopped thinking about it, that fulfillment stayed. And so, yeah. So it was the beginning of what he called discernment of spirits in terms of what moves you and what it moves you towards. Um, and so over the next few decades of his life, he founded the society and, uh, the, yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm giving of obviously, you know, I've taken an entire course on the history of the society, but uh, I'm not going to go through it with you now. You're welcome. Um, but but uh, these days, uh, especially since Vatican II, uh, well, actually th- these days, um, the Jesuits are mostly known for uh, our educational institutions. We run 28 colleges and universities in the United States and many more all over the world uh, and even more high schools. Um, But we're also, especially since Vatican II, known to be a little uh, kind of the more socially progressive religious order. Okay. Um, Where we actually coined the term "social justice." uh, Oh. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, (laughs) And so you will usually be getting involved in any kind of sort of uh, any kind of uh, issue of civil rights or. Right now, mm-hmm. immigration is a big focus. Yeah, you were just telling um, us earlier, before.
1: before we started recording, that you're uh, right now traveling and are uh, participating in a in a immigration rally of some of sorts.
2: Yeah, it's a there's a prayer rally today in San Diego, um, being led by some of my Jesuit brothers, and uh, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure what the agenda is, but I will go to the park and I'll be dressed in my in my collar and uh, I will. I will pray and do whatever, whatever is needed. Um, hmm. and we, we do a lot of, uh, direct aid work as well. It's not, it's not all just rallies and prayer <clears throat> well, that I, I will never say that stuff is not important. Um, yeah. But I think another hallmark of the Jesuits is, uh, being on the ground, doing practical work in addition to and,
0: uh, spirituality. Pope Pope Francis is a Jesuit, right? Yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, See, I did my homework. Yeah, there, there's some nuances there where some people like once you become a bishop, you're not quite a Jesuit anymore. But then sure. I have some friends who are Jesuit bishops who say that's not the case. But I just yeah, so there might be an asterisk by that is what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, but yeah. well, I think
0: it, it's it's interesting what you're saying about the social justice thing because I think that's what a lot of people really, you know, Pope Francis is like the man to so many <laughs> people. I mean, Catholics are not. Yeah, And that seems to me to be a big element of it is his, um, I think, desire for social justice. And it sounds like that probably comes from um, the Jesuit stuff.
2: It, uh, it's definitely in line with his Jesuit training um, and the, the way that we work actively with the poor and with the people on the margins, with all, people on all kinds of margins uh, yeah. means that he has that sort of comfort with addressing these situations that I think, um, a more formal theologian might lack uh, right. if they, if they haven't had that kind of field experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it should be required. <laughs> it should be. No, I, you would I, think. I, I, yeah, I'm sort of kidding, but um, yeah, I, I do. I, I think um, that endears me to him, like knowing that, that right. there's um, a, anybody who is in sort of like a, a seat of religious power or, or, or influence. Um, yeah, you know, you just, there, you can, I think, the, like, human beings in general, we tend to sort of, like, look at them with skepticism if their hands are not a little bit dirty uh, from, mm. you know, serving and, and and that kind of thing. So, well,
2: and that's Francis's famous statement of he, he wants his priests to be shepherds who have the smell of the sheep. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah.
0: I like that's that. Cool. Did you guys see, uh, there's a documentary out? About him?
2: I did see that. Uh, do you yeah, like it? It was terrific, actually. Uh, the, there's kind of some goofy parts with these flashbacks they do to, to St. Francis. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, uh, uh,
0: those are super goofy. reenactments. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> they yes. are like uh, traumatizations. Yeah, those are the worst. It's,
2: it's, it's a venial sin at once. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I mean, I love St. Francis, too. You know, he's, he's one of my favorite yeah. saints. But, uh, but I don't know how much I get out of, like, seeing someone pretend to be him and, like, stare right. at him. Right. But, uh but the the stuff with Pope Francis, it was actually a great kind of um, vocational booster shot for me. Uh, mm. Not that I was sort of questioning or was having trouble. Yeah, it's it uh, it's good to get those reminders of like that's that's why I became a Jesuit. Um, he, I mean, he's a big part of it. And hearing him speak so directly because he speaks straight at the camera for so much of it. And yeah, he, that sense of him talking right to you. Mm. Stuff yeah,
0: is, is, I mean, I probably like. It's almost like 75% of it is just him looking at the camera saying super memorable, awesome things. (laughs) You're Like I want to always remember that and be that.
2: I I, I almost wish I had been taking notes when I saw it uh, because there were so many things I said, Oh yeah, I want to remember that and use that. Take it to prayer. Take it to my ministry. Um, Totally. But yeah, he, he's, 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 he's not perfect, uh, but nobody, nobody is, but he's, uh, he's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's as close as anyone's got. <laughs>
2: he's 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 all right in my book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's nice to hear like yeah, I guess it's just nice to hear uh um I, I, you know, there's so many stories these days coming about coming out about people in power uh in you know, spiritual religious power like doing awful or boneheaded things. Um yeah. it's, it's nice to hear that like you know, as soon as I say this something will come out, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, no,
2: yeah. but there's always another shoe to try.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's nice to hear like about someone who seems to be like walking the talk, uh, which uh, is kind of the, what I hear about him anyway. So I don't
0: know him personally, yeah. but uh no, we hung out one time. We're <laughs> gonna have him on the podcast next week.
2: Oh great. Yeah. Uh I wish I wish we could have <laughs> You can uh, make
1: that happen, on. right? Yeah.
0: Just call yeah. him first or
1: time. whatever.
0: Yeah,
2: I don't know if he's taking my calls either, but
1: you know, it's like uh, it's he's on your speed dial, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, that's one of the one of the cool things about being in in the Jesuits is uh, is that level of connection. And well, no, I don't have Pope Francis's personal email address. Um, you know, I a lot of people who are actual close friends of mine are people who are close friends of him. Yeah. And hmm. so you're able to kind of, and you know, from what they say that he's. That he's very—that's uh, that not an act. That yeah, he's a real deal. When you're in that presence, you you actually see like, no, this is authentic. Yeah. Um, hmm. And I think I mean people are drawn to a lot about him, but I think the authenticity is a big part of it. Yeah,
1: that's true. Sure. Cool.
2: Whenever you whenever you see like the this, like the church, any church, kind of trying to be cool, uh, it it usually <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if someone's authentic and they're living their life the way they're they're preaching it, uh, I think that's very appealing. yeah.
0: It's oh. just
1: naturally cool when you do that. Uh, exactly. yeah. Did you grow up in the Catholic Church?
2: I did. Uh, I was a, a cradle Catholic. Um, as as, as our, our <laughs> is
0: that summer. the term? I've never heard that term yeah. before. Yeah, How yeah do I mean, use that.
2: I was baptized as a baby. Uh, okay. My my family is uh, we, we're, we're all we're all Catholic. To. To different levels, I would say, like uh, like most families, we, yeah. we have different mm-hmm. levels of engagement with our faith. Yeah. Um But, you uh, know, and it wasn't, uh, I, I would always, growing up, like I would go to Mass, uh, and I was confirmed, and I did my my first communion, and all, all those things you do as a kid, uh, yeah. but it was never it was never a huge part of my life. Um, it was something, like I would have always ticked the box saying Catholic on any form, but- um, sure. And it was interesting because I grew up. I grew up in the in the Deep South, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, and Ooh. there is um, that's the, the, that's the headquarters of uh, some of the more strongly anti-Catholic uh, evangelical groups. Okay, see, really? I didn't
1: know that because yeah. like Florida so. is this weird place that where some, some like <laughs> you know if you talk to people from Florida, there are some parts that are like this is considered the Deep South, but then there's parts of Florida that are like no, they're more northern or they're more
2: yeah. It depends. The further south you go, the more northern okay. it is, is, the, is the general. <laughs> Makes thought. total sense. Yeah, except then Miami is very heavily Latino, um, yeah. but but Jacksonville we're basically just below the Georgia border, okay. and we're more more Georgia town, I would say. Yeah, uh, hmm. uh, yeah. So, but so I grew up. My relation to my faith was very defensive, um, because I was okay. you know, because I have people kind of directly.
1: There was like them. an evangelical yeah. presence in jacksonville that kind of looked upon catholicism with um skepticism or or kind of
2: i I would say like um hostility is not the right word because i never felt physically endangered but i would disdain i would have to have the arguments a lot yeah i was disdain is a good word Um,
0: i guess i've never heard of that like anti-catholic oh yeah evangelicals and
2: and I i won't claim that uh that, that i was oppressed i think God. i know what you're talking yes. about
1: to some degree like um i didn't really grow up in the evangelical church but um i can't i like i came to faith in one and have participated in them and there in some of the churches i've been a part of there was definitely this like um attitude amongst christians there of like they're you know those catholics over there are preaching a different gospel like Like there, it's all salvation by works, um, would be like the phrase that they would use, I think, which is not, which I know now is not fair or the way it's, it's, I I realized that a lot of what I was hearing back then were like straw men that were created, you know? once you learn
2: scripture well enough, you know, you can, you can make it say anything.
0: You want. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Plenty of gymnastics to be had. That's yeah. for sure.
2: Uh, so, and you know, I would certainly not say there are no critiques that should be levied against the Catholic church, but, um, but yeah, it's, but when you grow up with it kind of like people just openly questioning some of the basic tenets of, of your faith. Uh, yeah. So I, but, so what, what I'm saying is I got, I had this very defensive relationship to it and uh I, it was, but it was all very intellectual. So I could argue kind of those theological points, um, and I could argue the the tradition that that justifies mm-hmm. these things. Um, mm-hmm. So Petrine primacy and transubstantiation and apostolic succession, all these things. Uh, but it was all up in my head, and I didn't really have an emotional experience of of God until yeah. until later on.
1: I yeah. had. And I definitely had some friends and well, I still know some people who would hear all those phrases you just said and be ready to like.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, there, there are some, words, down. some people listening to this right now who are opening a new mail to address. Yeah. For, uh,
0: <laughs> we're going to give them your physical address so that they can mail. Jokes
2: uh, on you. I'm always moving.
1: <laughs> there are probably some people who email me and be like, why didn't you question him when he brought up Transubstantiation. Yeah. And then some yeah. others who listen to this have that's no crazy. idea what transubstantiation is. Right, exactly. <laughs> anyway.
0: Go Google it if you can spell it.
1: So you, um, so you it seems like you always, like from a pretty young age, had an interest in like studying theology and and studying the faith that you grew up in. I think that's kind of rare. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of yeah, grow I up mean, in their faith tradition and never really. Explore it that thoroughly. <laughs> that's Care true.
2: that's true, and I—I I mean, I was always a nerd uh, of of whatever persuasion. Uh, like, you know what? Whatever I was, uh, I, I never did anything halfway. So when I got into video games, I got—I went deep. When I got into theater, I went deep. And when I, you know, studied the aspects of my religion, I wanted, you know, yeah. I. This is why I, I'm one of those guys for whom Wikipedia is so dangerous because I'll just. I could
1: think of my like, <laughs> I'm could. i kind of that way too. Uh, like I'll get on.
2: I, actually, you know what? I shouldn't. Cause I think everyone is that way. Uh, there's, <laughs> I don't think that's anything particularly special about me.
1: Uh, no, uh, I think though but, that, that but, there's
2: yeah. there, like I said, I do think there's a lot of people that always,
1: they just have their sort of faith tradition or whatever. And they sort of take it for granted that it's true. I'm not saying that's wrong, but they're yeah. sort of like, well, this is what mm-hmm. I grew up in. And I think it's basically true. And Maybe right. I do, maybe every aspect of my life doesn't reflect it, but
2: you know right, and that's so I mean that's what you know to continue that narrative a little bit uh, and I'll it, it the story goes a little bit dark here for a bit, because um, uh, when I was in college, when I was twenty, uh, my mom mm. passed away and mm-hmm. uh, and you know that that sucked uh, that that still sucks, yeah, um, but that also kind of uh, I didn't lose my faith. And I think that's a very common reaction to something like that. But I didn't, it, w- it wasn't that I lost it, but my my roommate at the time kind of noticed that I wasn't going to church stuff. And, uh, and he's, he, he's a Buddhist. Uh, so he, but he, like, we were very, very close. We still are. Uh, but my, my faith kind of meant something to him. Mm-hmm. And he asked mm-hmm. me, he was like, why, why aren't you going to church? And I just kind of flippantly said, Oh, God and I are in a fight mm-hmm. right now. Um, <laughs> and, and he just got this look on his face and said, you, you know, God's going to win. Right. And <laughs> Uh, And that's something that that stuck with me. Uh, And it it was like years later that uh, I had um, kind of a, I won't say it was a religious experience, but I had this moment of being able to let go of my own anger um, at a lot of things at the world, at my job, at whatever I was doing. And uh, as that happened, I kind of, uh, it was something that I interpreted as a moment of grace and it kind of made me mm-hmm. want to go back to church. And that was where I was like 25. Yeah. And that was where I, I was, what, the, the what happened that kind religious of, story
1: what, what happened that kind of turned the page It is
2: so mundane. Uh, <laughs> that's the, that's the beauty of it. So I was living in Los Angeles and, um, I don't know how well you know LA. Oh, uh by the but, way, uh, by the, the way, the, too, uh, I do uh, want to kind of back rough. up just a little bit, if you don't mind sharing. Like oh, yeah. how did your mom pass away? Sure. Oh, uh she had a brain mm.
1: tumor. Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah, it was rough. Um and going through it while I was in school just made you know, and yeah. you know, fifteen hundred miles away. And I
1: assume like, you and your mom were close.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was real close to my mom. and she was
1: she was um, a woman of faith. So like you said you grew up Catholic, so she
2: Yeah. yeah. Yes, and a lot of that was from her. She was the one who, you know, when I was taking a test, she would go to daily mass for me. And, uh, that kind oh, of it. that's, that's uh, amazing.
1: Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Yeah.
2: So I like to think she's, she's fine with what I'm doing. Now. Yeah. Um. Yes. But yeah. But uh, so and so, I was I was living in L.A. and um, I lived on the west side of L.A. and most of my friends lived in the Valley, which meant I spent a lot of time driving in L.A. and specifically on the, on the 405, which is
0: <laughs>
2: gusting freeway uh like yeah. they, they literally write songs about how bad the 405 is and uh like I guess I was I kind of alluded to I was I was a very angry person at this point in my life uh without a lot of cause but it was I think like a lot of that kind of anger it was unexamined hmm. hurt and um and so I would sit in traffic and just get that that kind of seething rage you know <laughs> <laughs> uh at, you know, somebody cut me off, we're not moving. And like, you know, that, that thing where you can feel your body temperature rising and you're, you know, start kind of having this physical energy, you need to go someplace. And I had this moment of saying, this is absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) Um, I can't do anything about the traffic. I need to stop being angry at it. And, and it took, and so I made this decision that, uh, you know, I can't stop being angry, but I'm going to stop being angry at traffic because I can't do anything about it. And it spent Uh, I spent about, about a year of this conscious effort of, of like very slowly stopping being angry at traffic. And it was that, that kind of classic, like, okay, count to 10, take (laughs) a deep breath, whatever. Um, And, uh, and over time it eventually got to the point I, it went, it got lesser and lesser and lesser. And it hit this zero point where I, I was very Zen about everything. And I was just like, okay, it's fine. I'm just here. But then what I didn't expect is that it kept going past that zero point to where I started actively making excuses for the people around me of like somebody would cut <laughs> me off and I'd say like, oh, I'll bet she's a doctor on the way to the ER and she's really out <laughs> of yeah um, And just this sort of active benefit of the doubt. Uh, and and that was the point where I, when I realized I was doing that, I also realized that I had let go of the anger in the rest of my life too.
0: And yeah. That was-
2: and it was this moment of crystallization where I was like, I should go back to church. <laughs> um, and the church—that's a, that's a
0: cool place to live in, in that space. I yeah. remember, oddly enough, <laughs> I worked for Apple for a year in their retail stores. Ah. And the most valuable thing I learned was this phrase. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about is assume positive intent. Mm-hmm. And they were doing it in the context of like, you know, customer service. And for us to, you know, a customer comes in and they've got this whatever problem to just start at a place of assuming that they're not trying to screw you over or be a scumbag, Mm -hmm. but that they're genuinely, you know, have a a real problem or whatever. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And like the times that which are few and far between, but the times that I've been able to achieve that in my life is just like the closest to perfection, I think, because it just takes so much pressure off.
2: Well, and, and what I would later find out is that's, uh, that's actually a Jesuit principle. Um, really you know, we, not that we invented it, obviously, but, uh, we call it the presupposition, oh, apple, obviously o- apple, right. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> we, we, call it the presupposition, the presupposition. of, okay. um, basically when you're dealing with someone with whom you disagree, uh, that before you have any further discussion or before you say anything to first put the most charitable possible interpretation on what hmm. they're saying. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So to come, come to the point where like, okay, why are they, and to basically do that process of excusing them, like, why are they saying this? Okay, here's pro, and then only once you've done that, do you start to address yeah. it. Uh, and that, you know, it's a, it's a principle for spiritual direction, but we apply it in lots of different contexts. Yeah.
0: Dude, people could benefit so much people. Me too. Everybody <laughs> would benefit so people. much from that simple. <laughs> especially those other yeah, people. That's cool. It's the opposite uh, of thank
2: God I'm not like that. Really tax, the opposite just, of building
1: those uh, straw men we were talking about earlier. Um yeah, that's that's uh, a tremendously valuable. I think a very um we're probably getting ahead of ourselves here. Because you but you already made the connection to the that being a jesuit principle but I think it's very much like a a, a jesus principle and um the way you yeah. see
2: him interact yeah. with
1: people uh you know
0: um yeah. absolutely yeah There's we need story. to hear the story of the transition from working on Skyrim to becoming a jesuit scholastic
2: yeah so that was That was also one that's, uh,
0: that's not a common story. I don't think.
2: (laughs) No. Uh, as far as I know, I'm the only one. Um, so, uh, you know, we shipped Skyrim and we were working on fallout four and I, I should make it very clear that I loved working at Bethesda and it was a great place. And there's no Shangri-La of workplaces, but, um, Bethesda was pretty terrific. Um, And, uh, but because it's so terrific, um, almost nobody leaves. And so Mm. if I wanted to be a senior designer, um, I was waiting for someone to retire or die and they're all, you know, those people I was waiting for were like 45 and in pretty good health. So, uh, I wasn't, so I probably was not going to get to, um, kind of move Mm -hmm. up in my career while I was there. Um, which, you know, is not their fault. I get it. They have the people they need. Um and i loved it there but i had sort of hit a point where i was like what am i doing next and um what i didn't know and i i when i had i had drinks a few months ago with uh or like a year ago with uh my former lead designer there and he, he said y- you were done you didn't know it yet but you were done and i said yeah hmm. i was um because uh basically it, it was around this time too i was getting much more into political issues, especially progressive stuff, uh, LGBT rights, civil rights, poverty, and kind of wanting to do something more with that. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and what really started driving this was, uh, do you remember there was this blog, it might still exist called Skyrim confessions, um, where people would send like a screenshot of the game and like a few sentences. It was, it was like Uh a secret Skyrim. Um, and, uh, (laughs) And I remember that is a
0: beautiful place,
2: <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but I remember very distinctly this one that said, "In the last year, this game is the only thing that kept me from killing myself." Jeez. And I just had this moment of, you know, in some very small way, mm. I helped save this person's life, mm-hmm. and in a very small way. But just realizing, like, I want to do more of that kind of thing, uh, and do it more directly. You know, mm. without without having this level of mediation between us. So, uh, I briefly kind of looked around, I was living in, in DC at the time, uh, right outside, because Bethesda is right outside DC. And I was looking around at like government work and NGO stuff, uh, to kind of figure out what, what, maybe what that next chapter is. And nothing really felt like a fit. So I, um, I took a job, uh, at, at Sony, uh, working on what would become, uh, the God of war that just came out recently. And, uh, and I, and I figured like, Oh, maybe I just need to change the scenery. Um, and maybe that's what I need. And so I took the job and that it was a promotion and it would, got me back to California. Um, and, uh, on the trip out, it was right after Pope Francis had gotten elected and, um, that same roommate who reminded me that God was going to win, uh, hmm. came with me for the drive. Hmm. Uh, and I remember we were in either New Mexico or Arizona and we were talking about the new Pope. And he asked me, he's like, "So they say this guy's a Jesuit. Why? Why is that a big deal?" Um, and I didn't know because I I never went to Catholic school or anything. I didn't. I I kind of knew who the Jesuits were, but I didn't know the details. And so yeah. I was like, "Oh well, let me look into that and I'll get back to you." Um, and so I got Sony and I worked there for about a year. Uh, and that was a good project too, but it, it wasn't. Wait, what, what, what year I was, was this? For. Um, this would have been twenty thirteen to twenty fourteen. Okay, cool. Um. And uh, So that was the
1: early stages of this new God of yeah, War game. Yeah. Okay.
2: Very very early. Um, and uh, and so you know, as that was kind of feeling like it wouldn't work out, uh, I I started uh I started researching the Jesuits to answer this question for my friend, and you know it was also like a lot of stuff like GamerGate was happening then, uh, the Ferguson protests, uh. Yeah. Like, and I remember like watching the Ferguson protests and having this really strong desire of like, I want to go there, mm. but I would be useless. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. so how could I be useful? Um, and so that happening uh, kind of having a different feeling of, um, of relationships and realizing that that's not how I'm called to love people. That might be a, another question we can go into later. Uh, but uh, so all of this was kind of coming to a head as I was literally reading the Jesuits Wikipedia page mm. and uh-huh. going like, wait, Back to the kind of work these guys do is the kind of work I want to do. Yeah, um, And that was sort of my first hook. And then through that, finding the spirituality, which was also a really good fit for me. And um, at that point, it was once I was just open to the idea. Uh, and a good friend of mine got ordained as an Anglican priest around the same time. And uh, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's a thing people do. Uh and so all of this was sort of just bubbling and the the church that I was going to at the time, I didn't know it, but I just happened to stumble into what's considered one of the best Catholic churches in America for young adults. Um and it, everything just kind of came to a head at the time and I was like, maybe this is something to think about. Uh so but the first Jesuit I met was the vocation promoter after I filled in a form on a website saying I think I might want to be a Jesuit. Yeah. Uh so they had me do a year a year plus long application process um, with uh, discernment retreats and spiritual direction. And um, I went out to uh, Nogales, Arizona, where we do um, migrant aid work. Uh, I had left my job at Sony at that point and I was working as a contractor on some stuff at Disney and being a contractor is great because you can just say, I'm not coming in next week. And they (laughs) can't tell you no. So you, I wanted to hear the story of how you like,
1: you you put in your like two weeks notice so that you immediately went to start your studies as a Jesuit. Yeah. But
2: well no it wasn't, wasn't quite, like quite that that, but, uh, that drastic. Right. Well I was working at Disney. Or at the like time. a, like uh, what's
1: that um I just it just left me. The Tom Hanks not Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, uh where, you know, he okay. uh, Jerry uh, Maguire I wanted Maguire. To, that to be a Jerry Maguire moment where you're like, it's
2: I'm gonna awesome. go be a Jesuit. <laughs> Who's with me? Well it's it, it it wasn't not it wasn't entirely unlike that cuz uh i i hadn't told anyone that i was thinking about it. like my friends knew and some of my family knew hmm. uh but certainly at work i didn't talk about it and um uh and so for some people the first reaction to hearing this was wait you're religious uh like they, they had no <laughs> idea um, yeah. but uh when i was uh i was play- so i was on a 6 month contract on this disney project and it was a star wars thing and i'm like this is a great note to go out on this this kicks ass uh and uh but i was expecting to finish my 6 months uh spend a f- like a month and a half traveling and then enter the jesuits and towards the end of the 6 months they ended up offering me a full-time job and i was like uh, i'm not prepared to answer this uh, <laughs> and i realized i kind of had to come clean as to why i wasn't going to take it and um i remember when i when i told my producer he said, "Oh God!" He said that. He said, "That's great." I thought you were dying or something, because uh, <laughs> he's, he's like, "You're always, you always have doctors' appointments, and you're doing all this stuff. Like, you the give sh- things away, and because I was, because after the Jesuits, I had like three different physicals and a psychiatric evaluation and all this wow. stuff. Uh, so, but all he knew was that I kept missing work to go to the doctor. Yeah. Uh, and there's a
0: <laughs> and so- that's funny,
2: and there's a vow of poverty. Is that right to enter the Jesuits? Poverty, chastity, and obedience.
1: So, was part of that vow. They said he said you were giving stuff away. Were you you selling things or giving stuff away to?
2: Not selling things. Um, So, yeah, it wasn't until it wasn't until after I kind of uh, let people know that I was going to be a Jesuit that I started actively giving things away. But I would, you know, even before then, I I was making more money than I wanted, and so I would always pick up checks and whatever, like, like when we would go out to lunch or dinner or drinks or whatever, I would mm-hmm. always be picking stuff up uh, in a way that I realized later was kind of suspicious because uh, <laughs> they, I mean, you know, we all made good money. And so they knew that it wasn't like, um, but the fact that I just didn't care at all was weird to people.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: and, and so, yeah. Uh, so the, with the, once I, once people knew I was going to be a Jesuit, I actually made a website to give away all my stuff. Uh where people could fill out the things they wanted, and then right before I entered, I ended up sending something like two hundred and fifty packages or so uh around the country mm. to to various people who had filled out forms on the website um, is there
1: a way is there a way to like um is there i mean there should be like a like a facebook marketplace type thing, but for jesuits and, and <laughs>
2: well, that's kind of what i made. Can, like I just made my own version people can- <laughs> did you really? Yeah. Uh, it might even still be up. If you go to stuff.chainleasegang.com. Oh, this is not good. Please please don't go to that website. I like giving <laughs> all the things away. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, there's all the stuff that I'm already there. All right. Yeah. Um, and so some of it was pretty good stuff. That's cool. Um, but, uh, What was that? Yeah, what was the process uh, of doing
1: that? Like for you, was it, uh, was it hard at times? Was it, or was it mostly
2: liberating? It was actually pretty great. Um, Because even even before I was thinking about religious life, when I moved from D.C. to L.A., uh, I had this moment when I was packing, just saying, you know, it would be so much easier to move if I didn't have all this crap. I think we all
0: feel that every time we move.
2: (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And just kind of having the moments of like, do I need to keep all these books? And I love books. And I love the books that I had. But how many of them am I going to read again? Uh, How many of them, let's be honest, have I never read? Yeah, uh, my wife and, says and that you know what, shelf.
1: They have too many books. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And so once I kind of started saying like someone else can enjoy this, uh, that became a nice little mantra. So as I was packing up all the boxes, I would, you know, take a book from the shelf, kind of flip through it, and remember how the ways I enjoyed it, and then put it in the box and say, and now Steve is going to enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that felt good. Uh, and when I entered the novitiate, I brought two suitcases and ten books um and that was it uh now there, i'll I'll, you know any of my family members listening to this will be like wait we still have boxes of your shit Uh, (laughs) so yeah i will admit there are definitely some things in storage in various places but uh it's a process you know
0: it's about the journey not the destination
2: that's what i keep telling them
0: yeah (laughs) So you mentioned these three vows, vow of poverty, chastity. I mean, I think we can get the gist of those two. Vow of obedience.
2: Yeah. So that's um, you know, poverty, chastity, and obedience are the the three vows that um everyone in religious life in uh in a Catholic religious order uh has taken since like the four hundreds or so. Okay. Um but they have slightly different meanings within each order. Uh Except chastity is pretty much...
0: You yeah, know, that's pretty um, straightforward.
2: Yeah, um, but <laughs> poverty and obedience both have kind of different contexts. Uh, and so with obedience for the Jesuits, it's um, it's obedience uh, in terms of uh, mission. Because uh, we, we also take a special vow that I haven't taken yet, but that's part of final vows. Uh, a vow of obedience to the Pope, uh, which people hear and they're like, oh my God, you're just like little automatons of Mm. hope, but it's specifically in regard to mission. Yeah. So if decided we need Jesuits on the moon tomorrow, uh, some of us would go to the moon. Uh, That'd be cool. But in terms of obedience on a day-to-day basis, uh, when my superior says uh, I need to be home for the night, then I need to be home. Uh, When my formation director tells me what course of studies I'm going to be taking, that those are the courses I take. Mm -hmm. Um, and we always say it's not a blind obedience you're not uh you're not expected to just salute quietly sure. uh, if you if you think there's more information that the superior needs you're supposed to bring that up um but the obedience kicks in when you recognize that now the discernment is over and the decision has been made mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's
1: you're allowed, it's, allowed to like, like like i don't know why we're going to the moon it seems kind of expensive and
2: <laughs> not a lot of people we, there we could we could raise yeah um, uh but then at some point uh, the, the, the decision would be made.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. Do you like, I mean, do you like that? Is as what, has that been an adjustment for you? I'm sure it has.
2: I mean, it definitely has as somebody who, you know, I mean, I always had bosses and things, mm-hmm. but you know, I, 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 you know, I was never married. I never had a family. I, you know, I like, my life was very much my own. And so uh, it's actually really freeing um, to not have to worry about the big decisions. Yeah. And to know that they're being made very much with my my best interests at heart. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Like if there's if there's an idea I have for something I'd like to do, I can bring that and say, "Hey, here's how I feel like I'm being called." And um, not everybody gets to do what they want to do, but those conversations are always had in good faith, and and you definitely feel heard, um, even if you don't get what you want. Uh, So that's, that's a change from, you know, working in the games industry or something where uh, a lot of times it doesn't matter what you want. (laughs) And, and I felt like sometimes those conversations were not in good faith, Mm. Uh, but here, you know, it's, uh, it's a different kind of life. And it's, we think of obedience as kind of an active trust Mm. in in knowing that um, the decision they're making might not be the one we would make for ourselves, but, uh, they have more information and they have a wider view.
1: You mentioned before that um, you still think of yourself to some degree as a game designer. Uh, we're kind of running out of time here, but I was be curious to hear more about that. Like how that still plays into your life now as a as a Jesuit.
2: Well, I mean, I still see the world in terms of systems. And I think I still see myself as someone, as like an agent acting on those systems. Mm-hmm. And so, especially with social justice stuff, when we look at the the systems that enable and perpetuate poverty, um, that's something that I I see through the lens of a game designer and say, well, like, wait, what are the loopholes here? What's yeah. the what's the way I can exploit or fix the exploits mm-hmm. here? Uh, and and honestly, like, I'm still making games. Once I got technology again, uh, I was like, oh, here's a laptop. I'm installing Unity and all my dev tools. <laughs> that's cool. um, now the beauty of it, like even when I was realizing I didn't want to do triple a anymore, I was like, I still love making games, but the stuff I wanted to make was all very Mm non-commercial social justice stuff Mm -hmm. that I made the comparison of like my best case scenario, assuming I did it well, which is a big, big assumption. Um, but assuming I did it well, my best case scenario would be something like cart life, which is a wonderful, wonderful game, but, uh, but you can't, I don't think he's making a living off it. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, so, so it's, it would be that kind of situation of like, ah, how do, how do I live? Um, <laughs> so now I can, I can still make games and I don't have to worry about my livelihood being attached mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. Um, and I, I recently got clearance permission from my superiors to do consulting work for games. Cause I had some folks reach out to me, uh, like they're either doing a game that has characters of faith in it, or there, there might be a theological theme or something. Uh, and they say, Hey, could you help us not do this poorly? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yes, that's yes, cool. Was there an example uh, you can share? Uh, nothing okay. that's public yet, unfortunately. Uh, but believe me if uh, if and when that that stuff does pan out, uh, I will be talking. Yeah, about
1: that's it. cool that they gave you permission. I just have this like I, I, this is totally a stereotype, but I have this this vision in my mind of your superiors hearing that you want to do some work and video games and going, oh,
2: I don't think that's really okay or <laughs> fits. Jesuits are known for sort of creative approaches to one of the Jesuit um, slogans, if you will, is find Mm. God in all things. Mm -hmm. And that includes secular media and art and music. Uh, And so there's Jesuit screenwriters, there's Jesuit artists, dancers, puppeteers, uh, and they're not just doing like, you know, Christmas pageants. Like it's like there's a Jesuit who wrote a few episodes of Game of Thrones uh, or not Game of Thrones. um, I'm sorry. Delete that part (laughs) uh, of House of Cards. Made a few episodes of House of Cards, uh, and uh, or like Bloodlines, like we so we've got folks doing like real compelling, interesting yeah. work,
0: uh,
2: and so th- that was the one thing. Is because I was actually approached, they said, Would you be interested in doing game work? and I said, What I don't want to do is the is the game equivalent of Christian rock, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, which you guys are big Christian rock <laughs> fans. I'm sorry, uh, no, you're good. Like, like, I feel like most of it is just not great, yeah. uh, and I was like, I want to yeah. do something good that has a spirituality to it, not something that I don't feel like it has to be overtly about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I would, here's,
1: this is another stereotype, but, uh, I think it's a good one at least for on your, on your end. Uh, (laughs) but I, I think it's my perception that, uh, Catholicism has lended for whatever reason. And, and Catholics have, made better art than evangelicals <laughs> like like it just <laughs> seems to me that um there's what you just shared there's see th- there seems to be a wider understanding of that's that's a perfect i think that's changing um in the in in the protestant mm-hmm. world uh lately there's i certainly know personally know a lot of great artists that are uh you know protestant but um yeah but i just yeah I, I I I've I've noticed yeah. what you're sharing um I guess I think
0: my sense of that and I my experience with Catholicism is pretty limited my my dad's side of the family is catholic so I kind of experienced a little bit of that growing up but I feel like uh, there's this burden or this like sense of urgency for evangelicals to like convert everybody that they meet the first time that they meet them and I think that drives a lot of You know, we have to use art as evangelism. We have to use music as evangelism. We have, you know, because we've got to convert these people before they go to hell. Yeah. And I don't get that sense from Catholics. I mean, again, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Um,
2: No, and I think that's a good way of putting it too the idea of like the emergency, the urgency of it, Uh, which doesn't mean, you know, I don't see value in that. Um, But it's a question of recognizing that so many people are put off by that kind of very aggressive approach. And uh and that they'll dig in their heels. Yeah. Uh so it's like how how can I get someone to continue listening to me? Um and that, you know, and it's by, you know, being gentle. And again, you know, like Drew was saying, if you look at the example of Christ of how he met people where they were, um yeah. and in this very non judgmental way, uh, you know, the woman at the well, mm-hmm. how gently he kind of met with her and, and brought her along, uh, is, is an example that I return to a lot. Yeah
1: yeah that's cool well we'll have to have uh have you out again sometime i feel like there's so many more questions that i have about this whole process for you and and just your story um, so yeah we, we may try to do that again um but i told you an hour and i want to i want to honor that yeah. um yeah thanks so much for coming on the podcast yeah dude um yeah well, thanks for having
2: yeah, absolutely me. And that's where great. can
1: people find you online what's the best way to to
2: um I'm on Twitter as Optimist Panda. Like like a yeah. panda who's like optimistic. You spell it,
1: Optimist Panda. Um straightforward. Yeah. Cool.
2: Yep. Uh and that's that's probably the spell easiest it. way to yeah. cool. to give me a shout out and and I respond pretty cool. quickly from there. Uh, Great.
1: Well, uh go check out lovethynerd.com. go check out our Facebook group, follow us on Facebook. Uh you can follow me on Twitter, I'm drewdixon 82 uh, you can find Chris on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. Um, and you can find him on Facebook and tell him he should be on Twitter or not. I mean, not, <laughs> everybody needs to be on it. Honestly, not everybody needs to be on Twitter. I have firmly yeah,
0: pressuring me. Drew. You're uh, marginalizing <laughs> I very, me.
1: I very, it was a very weak pressuring. Um, because then I went back on what I said. Uh, that's it. Go check out free play podcast as well. It's another podcast in our podcast network. Um, it's a really great show encourage you to go check it out um, if you're interested in supporting Love Thy Nerd um, you can come on podcasts with us and we, we have this deal that if you support us on a monthly basis uh, we'll invite you to come ask one of our guests like Shane a question you can come on and, and meet one of our guests chat with them a little bit um, it's sort of a little benefit we have of, 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 of supporting us so uh, yeah that's it for us